I'm Danie from Journey of a Braid, and this is Braided Conversations. Hi, I'm Danie of Journey of a Braid, and I created Braided Conversations as a portal into the minds and the journeys of people I admire. Um, I felt so often in my life uh, these moments when I'm having really special conversations with certain people that these conversations need a, a bigger reach. So that's basically why I'm doing this. I hope you enjoy this conversation that I'm having with Scott Cunningham from O Poetry. So it's a real pleasure for me to, to, to talk to you today. Um, I've been admiring your work for the longest time, uh, and it's oh, through you. a friend in common that we uh, that that I finally got to you. I've seen some of the things that you've done with Agustina Woodgate, mm-hmm. uh, who I know well, and um, I always see these little beautiful billboards, little billboards like in the Grove. I don't know if billboards is the right word, but uh, mm-hmm. all over the, the the Grove. So, what is poetry to you? <laughs> Well, We're going to start with the big questions. Yeah, <laughs> starting right at the top. Um, I think first and foremost for me, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, this is really cool and I appreciate it. The expression, I think, first and foremost. Um, and I think uh, what we've tried to do as an organization through Oh Miami is, is reinforce the idea that, that everyone is a poet and that there's no barrier for participation. And um, if you can... If you can think, you're, you can write a poem. So um, th- that's the way we've really, I think that's the, that's the version of the art form that we really believe in and, and want to espouse. And um, personally, I think it took me longer to get there because I came to poetry kind of late in life. Um, and so when I came into it, I was trying so hard to learn everything I could about it. And so for me, poetry was very academic at first when I, when I first started studying it. And then only kind of through working with Oh Miami did, um, did I realize that most of poetry is not academic at all. <laughs> and um, that it's, a, uh, it's something that um, it lives in people all over the world. Um, and and the, the sort of university side of poetry is only one small, very small slice of it. Were you intimidated by it? Were you intimidated by like the yes? And how how did you make it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, no, I'm still intimidated by it. I mean, I think um, you know there there are some incredibly talented and smart people uh, who are poets who, um, yeah, and, and and the edifice of poetry, you know, like anything else, like anything that's been professionalized, can be intimidating because. There are gatekeepers and there are institutions and things like that. And, you know, for someone coming into it new that all that stuff is intimidating, uh, all those structures. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it really helped that I started organizing pretty early on in my journey as a poet. And, and through through organizing, I got to meet actual poets. And in meeting poets, I realized, oh, these are, these are just very normal people. <laughs> and that kind of made it feel less like, okay, I don't, you know, I'm... I, I can I can maybe do this. I, like I could be a normal person too. 
But isn't that what happens with most professions? I think it's so funny mm -hmm. because I feel exactly the same way uh, when it comes to art, when it comes like to everything. And I think that what is beautiful about technology right now is that it sort of democratizes and it gives access to more people to be able to understand that it's not rocket science. As you say, like there is so much of, of simple lock and system and navigating the system. But what got you interested in poetry? Um, well, I think I was always interested in it. Uh, I mean, I definitely, as a kid, I gravitated towards creative writing and, um, I read a lot as a kid. So I, I definitely, and, and like most kids, I wrote poems, you know, I mean, I think when, when I was going through an emotional time, I, I turned to it as an art form where, you know, I could process my feelings, but then, um, I got interested in other art forms and, and moved away from it. But then I, uh, I kind of got serious about writing in general in my early 20s and ended up going to Florida International University to get my MFA in creative writing. But I came in as a fiction student. And my first semester there, I took a poetry class with Campbell McGrath. Um, and that kind of changed things for me. I mean, meeting Campbell, who was really the first like contemporary poet that I'd spent a lot of time with. Um, and so... And the way he writes is so, it just really resonated with me because it's very funny. It's very narrative. Um, it didn't feel like it was trying to prove something to you. Um, it was very welcoming. So he kind of opened up the whole world of poetry for me uh, in, in ways that I wasn't expecting. Because again, I, I didn't come in as a poetry student. And the only reason that I was able to take a poetry class is because FIU's program actually encourages you to write outside of your genre. Whereas not every program is like that. Some of them, you if you come in as a fiction student, you can only take fiction workshops. Um, and luckily, FIU wasn't like that. And so once I took a class with Campbell, about a year later, I was like, I think I'm, I think I'm going to switch over to poetry, <laughs> whatever that means for the rest of my life. Um, it's what I want to do. And that is a question. That is that is exactly it. I can imagine <laughs> it must have been a bit of a vertigo. And then your parents were like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> How was it's that? Yeah, I mean, I, it was hard. I mean, I, and I don't think there was any external pressure on me to make that decision. I mean, my parents have always been very supportive of me. Um, and it was more an internal pressure of like, what does it mean to be a poet? Like, I don't even know. And I just, I just had no context for it. And so I, I kept telling myself, like, even though you're gravitated towards this, you can't do that. Like you can't just go become a poet. That's not something, you know, but eventually the pull was too strong and I gave in and accepted it. It's also those words are intimidating, like artist, poet. It's like yeah. creative. I, I, I come from an advertising agency background and I was always like the creative and you're like, What do you mean? I'm, you know, like we're all creative. Like this can't just be a title. You can't just pretend to own that. Like it's, it's, it's very complicated. It took me years to be able to go through the word artist. Like for me, it's always like, and still when I hear it, I'm like a little bit of me like cringes because it's hard to, to grasp. It's so magnanimous. <laughs> Poet, it's the same thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also find those titles really alienating and, and limiting in a lot of ways and, and, and sometimes feeling like, uh, Yeah, you're you're taking on like this sort of puffy shirt, you know, <laughs> or I don't know. But but the, I think the good thing about the term poet in the U.S. is 
um, you know, a lot of people still don't understand what that means or like understand that that's a thing. So it's still, it's very confusing for people when you tell them that, which, which is still enjoyable, you know, <laughs> it's still enjoyable. I love how you say it. And I think also that's shifting and I, I'm excited by, by Amanda Gorman and mm -hmm. how, how one poem can move the conversation towards poetry once again. What, what did you think of this phenomenon? <laughs> uh, I loved it. Um, I thought it was an incredible moment and one that was a long time coming. I mean, I think um, it was sort of the perfect uh, like joining of a lot of different forces because she was exactly the right poet for that moment. I mean, because, you know, as she, you saw, she's incredibly talented. Um, she's super uh, skilled at performance. Um, she's like a fashion icon. <laughs> you know, she's got all these things that come together and then you put her on that stage and it, it obviously, you know, she shines because that's, that's what she was meant to do. Um, but I also think that, you know, there are years and years of um, people lifting up uh, poets, you know, that, that gets Amanda to that moment and especially performance poets um, who, you know, for years in like academic poetry were denigrated as not real poets. Uh, and finally, you know, that, that ridiculousness got, I think got cast aside. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think that anyone is still trying to pretend that performance poets are not real poets or people that come from a slam or, or, uh, spoken word background. So, uh, but that took a lot of years of people doing work and, and diversifying who, um, who's in poetry, you know, who are the gatekeepers, um, what are institutions looking for? Who's in those institutions? And even though there's still a ton of work to go, um, I think that a lot of people contributed to, to that moment where, you know, Amanda can become a superstar and make, uh, make things better for everybody who's writing poetry. Um, so yeah, yeah. so short answer. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> no, but I also love, uh, I mean, that, that I think she's, she's in that same mindset of understanding that she's the face of many that have been building this mountain. And I think that that's something that uh, the creative industry needs a lot, that, mm -hmm. that understanding of that community oriented, mm -hmm. you know, despite whoever is a star or not, it's, it's a big triumph for the art form. Definitely. And I think Amanda would probably be the first to tell you that, um, you know, and, and I, she's, she's very aware of the people who came before her, especially, especially black poets who came before who made her moment possible. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great moment for everybody in poetry and, and we're super happy to have her and, and have her being this new kind of poetry star, which I don't think we've ever really seen in the U S but in other countries, I think is kind of normal. You know, I mean, uh, when I've gone to other countries and you tell people you're a poet, you know, especially in Latin America, it's like, Oh, whoa, poet, that's a big deal. You know? <laughs> so I think in most of the world, like a, a star poet is not really a strange concept. It's just here in America. Yeah, that's also true. But what is the first reaction usually when, when the, so what are you? No, I'm a, a, I don't know. I have a business. Oh, okay. You, I'm a poet. What's the reaction that you usually get? Apart usually, from the I expression. <laughs> yeah. People usually say, yeah, but like, what do you really do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but what's um, like your real job <laughs> yeah yeah 
Uh, and there are poets who are just poets. I'm not one of those, but, um, but I mean, you know, fortunately I work in poetry. So, I mean, poetry is, is both my vocation and my job, which is, which is really lucky. And I feel super fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think people are confused people also feel intimidated because it's, it's not an answer they're expecting. And I think a lot of times they feel like it's not something they can offer an opinion on. And so they, they immediately kind of shut down a lot of times, you know? Because uh, they just have no context for it. Although now that you know Amanda's reading at inaugurations and Super Bowls and things like that, I mean maybe that answer will change. I mean I've been inside now for many months. I haven't seen a lot of people, so maybe the conversation on poetry has changed completely by the time this pandemic is over. You don't know it, but now you're a superstar. You just need to go out of the door, and you're gonna see all your 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 fan club. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> <laughs> behind yes well i i would expect that uh to happen and also like for your organization can you please tell me how old poetry was born sure so so oh miami it's the the name is is i i think important to explaining it so it's a it's an o like an otic address very classic like o comma miami so the o is is an address to the beloved and in our case the beloved is miami So we wanted a name that that sort of was poetry, not said poetry in a sense. So so we think of the name as a poem, which exemplifies everything that we do, which is we try to celebrate Miami. And for us, celebrating Miami is celebrating the people in Miami and what they have to say and their emotions and their thoughts and feelings. So every aspect of what we do is about providing a platform or a megaphone for people in Miami to, to speak. So um, the, it started as a festival. Um, I had been organizing, doing like, uh, like visiting poets. I was bringing people down here and having them crash on my couch and do a reading for about two years prior to that. And I called it university of Wynwood. And for those people who don't know, Wynwood is, uh, is an artsy neighborhood in Miami. Although at the time it, it was just getting off the ground as, as such. Uh, so I, I founded the university of Wynwood, which I thought was really funny because like no such thing existed. But so I was organizing under that name. And then, um, uh, yeah, uh, some people who were friends and supporters, um, through some discussions, you know, we kind of came up this, uh, with this idea of doing a month-long festival. And the goal of the festival being that everybody in Miami would encounter a poem during the month of April. Um, and it kind of started, I think originally we said the word deliver a poem to everybody in Miami. And that's how we first thought of it was like, we're going to make this huge poem delivery system um and and send poems out to two and a half million people in Miami. And so the first festival we did was 2011 and very quickly from getting out there and trying to be in as many places in Miami as possible, we realized that Miami doesn't really need poems delivered to it. Um it just needs opportunities for people to share the poems that they've already written. Uh, it was sort of like bringing poems to Miami was like bringing sand to the beach. Like it, it, you don't need to do it. Like people in Miami are writing poems all the time. And I, I'll give you one example just to illustrate it. We did this um, event where we set up at uh, El Palacio de los Jugos, which is a juice bar. There's multiple locations, but we were at the original one out on West Flagler. And yes. we had set up. Yeah, you know that place, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, and we we'd set up like manual typewriters and we had volunteers and we were basically like, Hey, if you're coming to, you know, get some chicharron or, or a juice or something like sit down and write a poem or, you know, share a poem with us or something like that. And this woman came up to Melody, um, who works with me 
and and said in Spanish that she wanted to share a poem. And so Melody said, oh, here's a typewriter and, you know, or here's a pen and paper if you want to do that. And she said, well, no, actually, I don't I don't know how to write. Uh, I write poems in my head and I recite them to my friends and family. And so she recited the poem to Melody and Melody typed it out for her and then took a picture of her, the woman in the poem. And that, you know, that that was like a really a real turning point for me where I was like, there's there's nothing I can bring Miami that it doesn't already have. And the service that I think we can provide is giving a platform to 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 the people here to, to express themselves. What a beautiful story. And it also reminds me of um, even up to date in Mexico, like there is this, I'm originally from Mexico, kind of, obviously, but there is this special plaza where they, they still have that, like just that service for for them to have someone that writes things down because they don't know how to write or read. And um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't, it, like it's, it's so beautiful that you're rebuilding sort of that uh, infrastructure in a way, but just as like building that space for you to write. Yeah, I've heard about those. And they're often like, I, I feel like the one I read about was like near a train station or someplace where a lot of people gather and just like a bank of, typewriters and, and they're writing letters for people like someone who needs a letter like written out i i find that stuff so beautiful um and and so at the heart of what what i think language should be about you know which is which is establishing personal connection and getting inside of you know past the exterior of, of people and, and getting actually down into what they're thinking and feeling which otherwise is opaque you know um And so we need some other mechanism to, to show that to other people. So, yeah, I mean, um, the, the festival has been really fun. We've been doing it every year since 2011. Uh, it's always a big endeavor since it, it's always a month long. And we, we try and be, you know, as geographically diverse as possible when, when we're doing programming. Um, and Miami is a very big county. So, um, so it's a lot of work. But it's also the most fun time of year for us because, you know, we discover things about our home through doing the festival that we didn't know. And, and that's really the joy of it is that, um, it's all new to us as well. You know, I mean, we're, we're encountering it for the first time too. Absolutely. And it's a totally different way of looking at it. It's like another set of glasses in a way, but what is like the, the, the strangest place in which you have made poetry happen? I know there are plenty. There are, there are. I mean, the first one that came to mind was um, uh, we we painted a poem inside of a urinal at, at Versailles and, and a few other places around Miami, which was a project that was proposed to us by a young poet um, named Ian. And uh, he, he was an art student as well. And, and sometimes, at some point in art school, he had to use the this really old Renaissance technique of gold leaf painting, um, which looks very ornate. And so he basically did these like very beautiful ornate, like medieval looking um, paintings of, of poems, but they were inside of urinals. So it was like, you know, the context and, and what it was like sort of, you know, an anachronistic. I like, I like the movement <laughs> when it comes to the context. <laughs> yeah. Very visual. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that that was really fun because I, I think that nobody's expecting that in that location. <laughs> uh, but we've also we've um, you know as you know you, you know Augustina Augustina has done a few different things like she sewed poems into people's clothing. Um, she's she's made 
like put poems into sidewalks for us where they were actually poured into the sidewalk and then printed. Um, we've flown poems behind airplanes. Um, I mean, it's, uh, we've baked poems, <laughs> put them in fortune cookies. Uh, it's, I mean, wow. every time I think that, okay, I think we've done everything you can do with a poem. Uh, someone comes to us with another idea that (laughs) we've never thought of before. And that, you know, that's fun. And for people to submit poetry, how does it work? They just go to your website or it's just during the month of April? Yeah. So it's, um, there's not like really one central submission system for poems. Um, so what the poems come to us in different ways. One of which is we do a contest every year with, with our local NPR station, WLRN, which is called Zippodes, where we ask people to write poems in the form of their zip codes. So like my zip code is 33138. So my poem would be five lines. And the number of words in each line is determined by the zip code. So I would have three words in the first line, three words in the second line, one word, three words, eight words. Um, and uh, so people submit those and they're meant to be like about where you live, like you know, take this thing, the zip code, which, you know, is basically kind of like a flat numeric designation and turn it into something poetic that says something about the place that you live. So, so we get a lot of poems that way. We do specific calls for specific projects. Like if a project needs a a particular type of poem, we'll typically do an open call. Um, We also have an education program where we have residencies in public schools in Miami and we generate a lot of poems from kids that way through um, constantly doing workshops and, and visits and things like that. So there's not like kind of, kind of one centralized, like you can submit a poem to the festival this way. But if people are interested in that, you know, just I guess like kind of stay tuned to us and there's always new opportunities cropping up. Yes, absolutely. I can imagine. And now I'm going to I'm going to do like a tough question to you, Ooh, which okay. is, um, well, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is I, I heard a conversation with Ocean Wong, who is mostly a poet, but lately he, he wrote a, a novel on his life. Um, and he says that one of the biggest problems with America right now, America referring to the United States, because I'm one of those persons that minds words and the term America, I have a lot to say when it comes to that. But anyway, let's say the United States, uh, uh, is that the language of success is built out of destruction. So that whenever you say that you're, that you're achieving something, it's I killed it. I, I'm a slayer, uh, you know, like uh, break a leg, that every time I hit a target, all those expressions permeate into the way people think about success. So what is your opinion on this? Well, I, I definitely agree with that. And I mean, Ocean is, I think, one of the most perceptive yeah. writers out there. <laughs> ocean is a phenomenon so um yeah I, I mean i totally agree with that i mean I, I think that comes from our definition of success existing inside of, of capitalism which is something that is built on destruction i mean that's there is no there is no creating of capital without without destruction it just it doesn't exist so i mean it makes sense that within our system there would be um linguistic evidence of that you know i mean language is a system that's informed by 
you know, the other systems around it. So it definitely makes sense that we would have internalized that larger structure of, of global capitalism inside of the way we speak. Um, and I think that's one of the things that poets like Ocean are incredibly skilled at doing, which is finding those places where language is it's failing people um, and, and subverting them and changing them and getting people to think differently by, by the kinds of words they use and the kind of structures of language they use. Um, and I think that, you know, the, sometimes those things get denigrated as, as politically correct, um, which, which is just another way of people in power saying, well, I don't want things to change. So I don't want, I don't want to have to change the way I talk about things because I don't want things to change. Um, but a lot of times that is the way things change is the way we speak about them. Um, and you can affect change that way. So, you know, we do have to pay attention to the way we speak and the words we use. Um, and that's one of the great things about poetry is that it's, it's a way to pay attention to, to the language that you've inherited. That's all around you that you're using and um, investigating it in a playful way. Mm-hmm. But then do you believe in the, uh, in the moldability of language to a certain extent? Absolutely. That, that you can transform it? Absolutely. I, I don't know that. I mean, I think the ability of one person to do that is is somewhat limited. Um, but language is always changing, you know. I mean, um, I, I don't remember exactly the timeline or whatever, but I remember in grad school um, in a linguistics class talking about, like, <clears throat> in how many years will the language that we use be so archaic that no one will understand it? And it's a lot shorter of a timeline than you'd think, you know, in the same way that Shakespeare feels very foreign to us in a lot of the ways that it sounds, um, and yet wouldn't have been when at the time it was written. So, so language is constantly changing, and people are, are the ones who change it. You know, it's not some external force. It's we do that. So, um, so while I think it is, um, it's a communal process, absolutely, uh, individuals can enforce change in the language uh, and inspire other people to make changes. And a writer like Ocean who writes such incredibly beautiful stuff that tons of people read. Yeah. It has an effect on the language. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm both, I'm, I'm hopeful about that because I think if you look back historically, yeah, language is, is always shifting. And what do you think also in the sense of like when, when, when imagery becomes so relevant and when, you know, like it almost seems like if we're going backwards in evolution to the way that at some point we were, you know, it was like the enlightenment and there were like these essays and all this information pouring in the encyclopedias. And then we started going down to like just newspaper and magazines and then like blog posts and articles on the internet that are like two paragraphs long. And then it just starts becoming, you know, a, a Facebook post and a tweet and an Instagram post that doesn't even need words. Like what's up with all this? And how do you see that? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the technology of language and, and image representation is always changing and it's obviously undergone a lot of, a lot of rapid change recently, which I think is why it's been so, um, disruptive, you know, is that, you know, the, the way that, I mean, even me as a kid, like the first, first papers I ever wrote for school, I wrote on a typewriter, you know, I'm old enough that like, 
it wasn't a thing when I, the first time, you know, like maybe in late elementary, early middle school or something like that. So, I mean, just in my, my half life that I've lived, uh, things have changed radically. Um, so, and, you know, I mean, we've seen both positive aspects of that and negative for sure. I mean, I think it's been, it's been disruptive in terms of, um, political unrest, um, it's also been empowering at some moments where it's allowed people who are trying to organize the ability to do that, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So, um, you know, this, this is way outside of my expertise, <laughs> so, yes. you know, but, but, but I do think that, um, it's always changing and I wouldn't assume that just because, uh, things are getting shorter, you know, and people are digesting things in smaller bits that, that that's always going to be the trend. Like, you know, um, it could swing the other way at some point, you know, and it probably will because things don't stay the same. Yes. I've always thought, uh, and, and, and one of the reasons why I find braids so interesting is that when you look at a braid, you know, it's like the ups and downs and the ups and downs. And I really think that that's exactly the cycles that we follow. So right now we're getting mm -hmm. to the limit of needing the most elemental three words to express something. And soon we're going to start going the other way around because we're going to start mm -hmm. needing that depth. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, for me, it's overwhelming also. Uh, I spend so much time on social media and I, it's right now with Clubhouse. Have you tried Clubhouse? Yeah. I have not. I have not. It's just, you know, like I, I just get overwhelmed by how much we can just keep going uh, like outside of, every, you know, like just at the top of everything and just... Superficie. The word yeah, is not yeah. coming to me, but just like from the top and that, that lack of depth. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, Clubhouse is full of motivational speakers that tell you the same three things over and over again. And you see their, their descriptions and their bios. And it's like, I launched five businesses and I'm worth more than $5 billion. And you're like, really? Have we come this far? Are we measuring <laughs> our success in life in terms of money? Mm -hmm. Then like the end. And I go back, I, I think again on what you just mentioned about capitalism. And of course, we're, 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 this is a country that is all about capitalism, but how does that, you know, I, I, I have a lot of trust in poetry mm -hmm. as one of the ways out from that sense of the economy being the guiding principle for everything. Yeah, me too. I do too. And I think, um, I think poets are at the vanguard of, trying to think ways out of that system that, that is so crushing and reductive um, and destructive. So I think a lot of poets are doing good work on that. Um, and, and there are different ways to organize, you know, societies. Like um, I'm reading this book right now about um, lost cities. It's called Four Lost Cities. And, and it's examining these cities that, that you know, technically died. Um, And they're from all different points in history. Um, but one of them is, um, is called Cahokia. And that wasn't its real name. But it was basically where um, East St. Louis is right now on, on the Mississippi River. And it was a city of 30,000 people. Um, and it was completely organized around spirituality. There, it wasn't a commerce center. It wasn't like a place where people came to trade. It was just like a city organized around Um, whatever people worshipped or believed at that time. Um, so I think if, you know, like 
looking back, like there are other ways to organize communities uh, and communities here around, uh, even in the United States, there are other ways that people organize themselves than, than around commerce. Um, and it's just that we live in a nation that is completely organized around commerce and, and the, the government's job really like is to protect commerce. You know, and we've seen that play out in really horrible ways in the last four or five years. So, uh, but there are alternatives, and and I think we have to continue to believe in alternatives and pushing alternatives. And um, yeah, and I think poets have been really good at doing that. Have you have you read about hi uh, Carcassonne and the I guess they're the, the Qatars? It, no. it's so it was a, a beautiful sort of religion that was very conscious about life and had all this respect also of not eating animals. And um, but the problem is that the church just wanted them to wanted to tax them even if they weren't related to the church in any way, and they just destroyed them. Like yeah. between, between the Templars and them, they destroyed them. And it's yeah. just yeah. I mean, it's so important to look back. And I mm -hmm. think it's also if people find themselves limited on time and they might not want to spend the hours in reading a, a huge book. Simply a, a poem can be a window into sparkling that curiosity that might get them to go inwards. Absolutely. And think about, um, think about centering, you know, one's emotions. You know, I'm just thinking about how, so many contemporary poems that I love are really about, about how to love other people in different ways. You know, um, there was a, a thing that happened yesterday where a poem went like semi-viral, um, which is always fun, but it, it's this, it's this long poem by a poet named Ross Gay. Um, and it's called catalog of unabashed gratitude. And it's basically a, like a long list of things that Ross Gay is thankful for. Um, and it has an incredible energy about it. And the poem's been around for a few years now, but the uh, the musician Bon Iver made an instrumental track to put underneath the poem. And then, so there's a YouTube video of, um, of basically like, it's like a short film of like a, a series of still images with Ross's words come up on the screen as he says them. And then Bon Iver's music underneath of it. And, uh, and it's really beautiful. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, it, it it's, such a great example of like how to orient yourself differently to the world. And the poem talks about some really painful stuff, you know, like people close to the poet dying, you know, um, you know, and other types of violence, but it's all within this framework of gratitude, you know, and, and even in these horrible things, he's finding something to be grateful for in the context of that. And there's such an incredible strength to that. And it's such a, it's such a different way to exist in the world than, you know, what you normally hear when you go on social media, you know? Um, so, you know, stuff like that, I'm just, again, I'm thankful for, you know, I think it, you hear that and it's like, uh, it's like someone's burning sage inside your head or something, you know, and just like clearing out all the, all the, bad <laughs> <By> the internet. <laughs> no, and you're right. In the end, it's a choice. In the end, it's yeah. a choice where we spend our time and it's a choice, the kind of information that we receive. But uh, I love to find characters like 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 the one you mentioned. Um, I think I follow a lot of people that are poets without knowing it, or that you know that, uh, and and that's one of the things that I love the most because it's without that framework 
of the tension of having to impress through words, but that still the messages that they're passing by are just so strong. And there is so yeah. much value in that. Like um, for me, my background is mostly fashion and I always use like the window of fashion in order to give deeper messages that are always about like the visual cues and all that. So it, yeah. it's very interesting. As you say, it's all, all about where you, where, where you put your mind into, but I, I, I do think that there is a lot of power into poetry also when it comes to redefining the social structure, as you say, the definitions of love. I think that we cannot talk about like these changes in capitalism and organizations of, of people without taking into account that as well. Like, Mm-hmm. just through COVID, I think that a lot has changed in the way we perceive each other, <laughs> family, <laughs> everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope that, that yeah, I, I hope that could be a positive that comes out of this, that, that people are um, thinking about those things more. That would be great. Yeah. I agree. So now I want you to give me like the first three poets that come to your head. <laughs> don't think don't think okay yeah yeah no no i'm not thinking okay so jose alivarez uh-huh. um uh oh no nah, it just happened okay all right uh wanda coleman um uh-huh. and nate marshall so okay jose is a jose and nate are both younger chicago poets when i i thought of one and then i immediately thought of the other because <laughs> 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 they're good friends and they they used to live together so like uh, you know, yes, uh, that was a natural place for my mind to go. Um, but they both they both write beautifully about about Chicago, um, and I think about about community um, in their work, which is I think why you know based on our conversation why they might have been already like entering my frontal lobe. And then Wanda Coleman is a a poet who's from LA who died about seven years ago, um, who. Just someone, I, you know, who was unknown to me until about two or three years ago. Um, and then I, I just started reading her seriously last year, like really in depth and just someone I'm really in awe of. And, and her work is just, yeah, like, yeah, I, you know how it is. Like you, you find a writer that you really love and that's like the only writer you think about for a while. Or at least like that's the way I am. Like I'll dive really deep into someone when I'm, when they really capture, you know, my imagination. And so. I spent uh, a bunch of months during the quarantine reading Wanda Coleman uh, pretty consistently. So, uh, and, and I, I recommend everyone reading Wanda Coleman and Jose and Nate. Um, yeah. And then, if you like, if could if you could only choose one poem, first one that comes to mind. One, you can do this. You can do this. <laughs> okay, this is the first one I thought of. Um, uh-huh. Uh, there's a poem by a poet named Aga Shahid Ali, uh, who died in 20, 2001, um, who's a Kashmiri American poet. Uh, and the poem is called Lennox Hill. It's L-E-N-O-X. And then second word, H-I-L-L, Lennox Hill. And it's a, um, it's, uh, it's a poem about his mother. It's an elegy for his mother. And I think it's, it's the poem that, that like hits me the hardest when I read it. Like it absolutely like, I mean, I can't read it without crying. Like it's impossible, but it also is formally, I think maybe the most skilled and like 
just like the gymnastics he does in this poem are like just like they're mind blowing. Like the fact that like I I don't even understand how he wrote the poem. Like it's that it's that um the construction is that ornate and I think like difficult to do. And yet when you read it, you don't feel that. You know, it's not like it's not like one of these things where it's like trying to show off and like and and alienate you with its form. The form is actually super critical to how the poem ends up having its emotional impact. Uh, and yet, like, I, I truly, like, I don't know how I did it. Like, every time I read it, I'm just like, wow, like, that, how'd you do that? <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Um, yeah. I am so intrigued. <laughs> I really need to look into this. I'm going to send you my Mexican references for you to Oh, please do, please do, yeah. Have you read Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz? I have, yes, I have. Um, you know, in translation, so, you know, it's, yeah. you know. It's it's yeah. never never a perfect scenario, but yes, in translation I have. Poetry is so hard to translate. It's, it's really so difficult. Hard. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's uh, yeah. I mean, there's always something lost, but there can be something gained too. You know, I mean, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, that's that's such a crazy art form translation. That's mm -hmm. oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and at the same time, you know, like then. Another mix that I really like is Octavio Paz and how he mm -hmm. was, you know, he used to write fully in Spanish, but then when he lived in the in the U.S., he also started writing in English. And mm -hmm. then also language becomes a, not only a bridge, but 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 an understanding of a whole mindset. You, you're able yeah. to understand the country where you're at through through the new words that you're learning. For me, I'm surprised by all the words I've learned lately. You know, like yeah. probably not the best ones. But like white supremacy, white, like all these things where I'm like, there are terms that I had no idea. Supremacia yeah. blanca. Like I can't even translate them. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not a fun I, word, but an important word. <laughs> yes, exactly. But that it, I think it determines like the last six months of, of, the, of the social conversation. Yeah. Like that understanding and that reflection of what that might mean in your own context. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, uh, I'm a mestiza. So I, I'm also part indigenous and how am I reflecting that because you know I don't know that, that's a, that's another podcast <laughs> yeah but I think like you know that these things are reflective of um the language changing to more accurately reflect more people you know I mean because the reason why the reason why white supremacy is something that people are talking about right now is because we have to talk about how whiteness has been all encompassing in the United States and something that has been reinforced as a norm uh, in order to, you know, enforce and put forward all kinds of agendas, which are harmful to many, many people, including white people. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's good that we're talking about white supremacy because if we're not talking about it. It means that it's, it's getting worse. Exactly, <laughs> um, like it's just building roots inside us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, so it's good we're talking about it now. Absolutely. That's one of, of those words. Um, but what what does uh, your future look like right now? What are your plans for the year that we shouldn't have any plans? <laughs> How are you feeling about life lately? Uh, I, I feel good about it. I mean, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that hopefully... Um, you know, people will get vaccinated and, and we can go back to some semblance of public life. 
this year, you know, before the year's out, but um, that's a little bit out of my control. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've just been focused on spending a lot of time with my family. I have two daughters. Um, and so my wife and I spend most of our time, you know, the four of us, uh, and they're young. So it's, it's been fun to be at home and see up close all those milestones and just to like, all I have to do is open the door and I'm, I'm home, you know, <laughs> there's no commute or anything. So, so I enjoy that. And we're, we're going to take like a little mini vacation, um, outside the house for a few outside days. It's, it's something we haven't done yet <laughs> in almost a year. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm enjoying, um, being with my family and, and being a part of some other communities that I'm a part of. I mean, they're strictly online right now, but friends, um, and, and extended family members and continuing to read and write, uh, which is always a joy, you know, and a privilege to be able to, to be able to do that. So I don't, um, I don't take that for granted like I used to when I was a little younger. Absolutely. And you keep it as a routine, like you wake up and you write or, I, it, it's not that I'm, I'm not like a wake up and write at the exact same time every day. Um, you know, parenting makes that a little tricky. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, and some people are, you know, very like regimented about it, you know, and I'm, I'm not that kind of person, but I have, I have plenty of space to write and, and I'm pretty good about it as soon as I get the space doing it. Um, so I've been working on a new manuscript for a couple of years now, pretty seriously. So um, that's been fun to kind of see that progress and um, hopefully, hopefully get somewhere, you know, soon, but it's been fun to work on it. Ooh. Yeah. What, what, what about you? What about your creative process? How's that going? Yeah. It's um, I'm loving it. I'm in a good space. I think, you know, it's weird because life keeps pushing me to a more uh, marketing-oriented work, mm-hmm. but I'm being able to always come back to, to, to what makes me the happiest. I, I, I recently did a performance with Mette Tomer up at Locus Projects, mm-hmm. and it was a mix between poetry and movement. And, and just having finally, I mean, I, I had a, a similar sense to what you had with poetry. I had it with artistry in general. So my parents got divorced when I was young and my mother was an artist and it was always like, you know, my dad, I, I lived with my dad. So it, my, like everything that was related to art was like, no, he loved art, but not artists. So uh, I always stayed like in the safe side. And also like all this time, COVID, I, I keep, pushing my limits when it comes to that and with, with making peace with that part of myself and just living it because it's what makes me the happiest. So, um, I'm happy that I've been able to work full on. I've been nonstop through the pandemic with my other side of the world, uh, job that has nothing to do with what I talk about usually online, but, um, I'm also feeling very fulfilled in that side. And I'm finding that, what you just said, which is the most important thing that a creative needs to have, that when you sit down and you write, you, you, you can just do it and get in the zone quickly. I'm getting better at that. And that's the best gift from the pandemic and from having my children around running. And, and I learned how to focus so that I can divide. 
And now that I have that, I think I, I can go further. I wrote a, a book of poetry in Spanish, uh, Botica de Palabras para el, Alba, para el Alma. That is beautiful, oh, like it. words, little, yeah, you cannot translate botica. Pharmacy, but not really. <laughs> Drugstore. <laughs> <Don't>, yeah. <no. laughs> yeah. So it's just words for the soul. Um, and, and I'm just having a a blast with that. And, and, and these series, which uh, I'm closing now, which was the the, the poetry series. Now I'm going to start with art, um, has been lovely because just listening to, to, to people like you and like all the different works of life, understanding poetry and just finding, finding this solace in words. So I'm very excited about this project as well and looking forward to continuing. So, no, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's great when you can get to that place where, um, you can detach being engaged with the art form from those, those kind of destructive, ambitious goals that, that we like to, or like the world likes to put on them, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm doing this so that I win an award or I get this position or, you know, all those things, which are distractions. And and I think take away from, the potential joys of being engaged in the art form. So that's great that, um, that you found that joy. I mean, uh, it's, I can't always get there. <laughs> I try, you know, and, and I'm always trying to be better about it. Um, but you know, the, the world has a strong voice and sometimes it's hard to ignore it, you know? Yes, I agree. And then life just sort of pulls you in different directions. Yeah, definitely. So it's good because I can be, you know, I, I have like all these goals in my actual work, but like art has become that pure space of, of, of joy and commitment to myself. Yeah. And it took me a lot of time to get there. So, yeah. Yeah. But, but yes. Thank no, you so awesome. much for your time, Scott. I can't wait to meet you in person. Yeah. I, I, I can't wait to see everybody in person. <laughs> I, I forget what that's like, but yeah, no, I, um, I, I'm really excited that we connected and, uh, and yeah, and in the future we can, we can meet up. Absolutely. One day we will yeah. <laughs> enjoy your outing with the family. Uh, and, thank you. You too. You too. And stay in touch. I'll send you my Mexican recommendations. Please, please do. I would the yes. Yes. So I'm, I'm always, always looking for, for new poetry constantly. So please, I would love that. Music production and audio editing by Nori Ehrenfeld.